So it's in all of our self-interest to have a resource that so that people can live here and stay here. And it is an investment by the community that, that you know, Orcas has decided it doesn't want to be a place where the workers are flown in on the weekends to serve the people who, who don't work and who live here. Um, but rather, it wants to be a community with people of all incomes. And so our community has invested accordingly and supports the, the creation of our, these homes. Welcome to the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast, a show about human environments and how they can be used as a force for good. Conversations that educate and inspire people looking for a different way to do real estate. I'm Neil Collins, and on this episode, we are joined by Julie Brunner to talk about her work creating permanently affordable homes when the market simply cannot make the math work. I've spent a lot of time in university economics classes. In my undergraduate schooling where I majored in agriculture economics, the professors taught these economic classes as if it were a science that's ruled by Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market. This market, they say, is made up of countless individuals and organizations that are all seeking to maximize their own benefit. Because humans, after all, are rational beings, and that's what we're meant to do in a capitalistic society. However, when I stepped outside of the classroom, I quickly realized that there was a major chasm between theory and practice. You see, for better and worse, there is no such thing as a free market. There are always policies, rules, and regulations that manipulate the market. But even more striking is the way we practice our version of neoliberal economics by its very nature creates wealth disparity. And how this looks, particularly in densely populated cities, are people sleeping on the streets or in tents and RVs, because they cannot afford to live anywhere else. The market has very few housing options for people making low income or those that, God forbid, have mental health issues and addictions and they become cast aside because we simply do not know what to do with people like this. On this show, I had the pleasure to get to drink from Julie Brunner's fire hose of expertise when it comes to creating permanently affordable homes using a community land trust model. I've gotten to know Julie through my work as a board member of an organization called Home on Whidbey because she's been helping us get our organization off the ground to provide critical housing solutions on our island community in Washington's Puget Sound. You see, here in our rural island community, we're in the shadow of Seattle, where many people have vacation homes. And the lack of affordable housing shows up in ways that tear at the very fabric of what it means to have a functional, thriving community. 
Schools can't fill teacher positions because the teachers can't find homes. Shops and restaurants are understaffed and have volatile hours. And critical services such as medical workers, emergency responders, and contractors are all affected. Julie is a big advocate of the Community Housing Land Trust model, which at its core is able to create affordable homes by decoupling the home from the land, and the land is then held in the commons. The home is then able to be purchased for a fraction of a cost of what a market rate house would be, and the appreciation of the home is capped in order to keep the home permanently affordable long beyond the tenure of just one owner. Now, this does involve a lot of math and creating partnerships between public money and private money. But I personally believe that we're going to continue to see community land trusts become more and more popular across the world. Julie is one of those leading experts in the U.S., as you'll hear. So get ready for a masterclass where we talk all things community land trust. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to an episode of the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Julie Brunner, who is on Orcas Island in Washington State. I want to give a little bit of background here, Julie, of, of why we're, we're talking. We are putting together the talking points of what is a community housing land trust. And Julie, as we're going to get into this, works across the country working in the arena of permanently affordable Homes and is a part of Opal Community Land Trust on Orcas Island, and is just a deep expert. And so we're trying to package up some language of of how to explain this to a new a new entity, a new community land trust on Whidbey Island, where I am. And so we're just going to take this opportunity to to do a podcast episode about community housing land trust. And so it's a pleasure to have you on, Julie. Thanks for having me. Julia, I've got to say, I've been working in real estate for some time and working in this arena now of permanently affordable homes and community land trust is, I'm shocked at the amount of brain damage that goes into, and maybe that's that's not a fair statement, but it's taking kind of the best minds that I've seen from the public sector and the private sector. And I'm curious if you always saw this was your path into this industry or if you, like, how did you get here? I'd love to know that, that story of becoming for you. So I, my interest in affordable housing on a more generic level started in graduate school. I think I w- I got a master's of city regional planning from Rutgers and I was sort of interested more in international community development. And so I wrote some papers on housing in Kenya and things like that. And that sort of piqued my interest. And then I had a couple jobs early on after graduate school that were more generic affordable housing. And then I moved to Athens, Georgia, where I worked for the city county government and I was responsible for giving out all of the HUD money for that local community. And that's where I met my first community land trust. There's a Athens community land trust there and they are both a community housing trust and a land preservation trust combined. They're one of the few sort of combined trusts and trusts in the country. Um, and that was really my introduction to community land trust. And I saw some presentations early on and we were funding them. And I thought that, you know, it was sort of this light bulb of this is really the smartest way to do this. And I was enamored pretty, pretty immediately with the, um, this idea that you can create something that then perpetuates 
forevermore a stock of affordable homes in any one community. And so what happened from there? I mean, if this light bulb goes off and you see this example, did you just immediately quit what you're doing and and, and well, first in. I funded it, right? First I gave him money. So that was that was fun. <laughs> and then um, my husband was in graduate school at the University of Georgia at the time. So that's what took us to Athens. And then we were moving out here to Orcas Island. And while I was in Georgia, I had heard about this organization on Orcas Island called Opal Community Land Trust. And I knew it to be a very small community land trust. And I figured, well, the chances of me working there are pretty slim because I'm sure they already have people working there. And being an island of 5,000 people, they can't have a lot of people working there. So we moved out here and um, and I was sort of home with my baby and my three-year-old for a couple months and then opened the newspaper one day and saw that Opal was hiring somebody and I applied for the job. And they were delighted to find someone with any housing experience and I was delighted to f- work for a community land trust. Why don't you set the stage for people that are unfamiliar with the Orcas Island? Because I think this is a great way to really introduce the need around community land trust and what they are. And let's just dive into to what's happened on Orcas Island and, and everything from that perspective of, especially a local's sure. perspective. So Orcas Island is in the San Juan Islands off of Washington state. We are a small rural county and the island is home to about 5,000 permanent year-round residents. We have the honor of having the most expensive real estate in the state, along with usually either the lowest wages to the third lowest wages in the state. So we have unbelievably high housing costs and low incomes, coupled with, you know, an inability to commute. We are an island community that's served by ferries, so there's no bridge to get here. So you have to, people in Washington know what I mean when I say served by ferries, not very well served by ferries, but served by ferries. So there really isn't an ability to kind of sprawl and just move a little bit farther out to get cheaper real estate. So you either live here or you don't. And if we want a community that's going to still have a school and a grocery store and places to eat and all those things that we all enjoy in a community, then we need housing for everybody who works in those places. So Opal Community Land Trust has been around. Our first neighborhood was built in 1994. And so we've been here for a while and we have 110 owner-occupied homes that are resale restricted. So that means that they are sold at a below market price to an eligible household. And then they are resold at a below market price to another eligible household in the future. And then we have about 90 rental units that will also remain affordable in perpetuity. And that's a pretty dynamic combo of, of rentals and homeownership. And maybe this is a really good time that we can just jump into the 30,000 foot view of what is a community land trust and how does that differ from what people hear of land trust? Because I know that's a little bit more popular with things like the nature conservancy, but if you can paint that distinction, that'd be great. I always love it. If you go to the San Juan County Fair here, we used to have a section in the, you know, there's like those nonprofit booths and things. And there was sort of this little corner at some points in time of all of the land trusts in San Juan County. And we have the San Juan County Land Bank. We have the San Juan County Preservation Trust. We have the San Juan Community Home Trust. We have Opal Community Land Trust. And we have the Lopez Community Land Trust. And I probably forgot somebody, but there's a lot of us. And so, you know, traditional land trusts do land preservation for the sake of land preservation. And community land trusts are really community focused and put their efforts into housing to make sure that communities have housing available to all the members who live and work there. So this is where I think it's helpful to dive into the narrative around market rate housing, that there is this dogma, I guess, of it's a supply problem. We just don't have (laughs) enough supply. 
Yeah, I think it used to be that that it could, but that's not true anymore. Pretty much anywhere in the United States now. It, it used to be geography specific, whether or not the market could really address the needs of the people who live in any particular market. I was an economics major as an undergrad, and I'm, I love spreadsheets, and I love data, and I love all those numbers. And, and there is no way that the market, I mean, if the market was going to solve this problem, it would have solved this problem. And and from my perspective, you know, the market's the problem, not the solution. Um, and we really need an alternative market, which is what we do. We create this sort of different market that folks can actually buy into. And it, you know, Opal has sort of came to the rental world a little bit kicking and screaming. We really didn't see ourselves as part of a rental housing solution, but there was no one else in our community doing it. So we we met a community need. But our roots were really in this home ownership program and this idea that, you know, every community Every, you know, people of all different incomes benefit from home ownership. And it's not just about wealth creation, although that's a component of it, but it's about stable housing costs. And it's about, I always say that the reason people buy Opal homes is because they want to be able to have a dog and they want to be able to paint their house any color they want. And they they want to be able to, you know, make a nursery and do those things in their home. And when you're renting a home, you don't have the autonomy or the authority to do a lot of those things. And so um, having stable housing really can transform people's lives. And, and the market has not provided that, especially in cities. The majority of people rent in cities. And nationwide, our homeownership rates are in the mid, you know, 65% historically, but that's not true in our cities particularly. So what does it mean to go from private ownership and into community ownership? Because this is really a fundamentally different way to to hold property that in a way, as I see it, it's like it decommodifies the yeah, real yeah. estate. Yeah, I think it? that's a good way of putting it. And it's really, it's a partnership, right? So what we do is we partner with our home buyers. Right now, it will cost us $650,000 to develop a half of a duplex in, on Orcas Island, which is a lot of money. And interest rates are 7%. So that, you know, buying power just fell by $100,000 over the last six months. So people who could afford a $300,000 home, which is still not cheap, now can afford a $200,000 home. So what we do is we build our house for whatever we're going to build it for. We know our target market is a particular income band or anyone really who can't afford a market rate home on Orcas Island is one of our potential home buyers. But we partner with those folks. So they go out and they get a mortgage to buy a home just like anybody does. We sell them the house. We keep the land and we fundraise and get grants and private donations to to put our investment into this transaction. So they might bring $200,000 to the table. We have to find the other $450,000 dollars to the table. So together we can build or purchase one home. And then in exchange for that below market price of 200000 or whatever it is, they agree to limit the price at which they'll sell it in the future. And the legal mechanism that that protects us in that transaction is we keep the land and, and the lease that they sign has that those details outlined in it. So it really is, I mean, I appreciate your reference to decommodification of land because that's really, we're taking it off the speculative market in some ways. We're creating a separate market where the price is dictated not by what's happening with the surrounding properties, but by a slow, steady increase in value that we've predetermined. So the home buyer is able to use a mortgage and they have mortgage pay down. So they're gaining equity that way. Do they have any appreciation over the lifetime of their ownership? Yeah, so community land trusts will spend a fair amount of time kind of figuring out what the right resale formula is for their program or for their community and the economics in any one community. So Opal's resale formula is a what we call a fixed rate formula, which means whatever you pay to purchase your house, that number 
will increase by a fixed rate each year you own your home. It's in our case, 1.875% annually. And it's not a guarantee. So if you trash your house, you won't get it all. Or if there is a, you know, a really, at this point, really substantial market decline, you might not see all of that gain either. But given that we have a $450,000 buffer before someone would start seeing a decline in their return, it's a really safe investment for homeowners too, because unlike market rate homeownership where people see record gains, but they also see unbelievable losses in some cases, our homeowners are largely protected and buffered from that environment. What is the feedback that you get around this? And I want to bring this up because I I think it's important to bring up the criticism of community land trust in general that like this, it almost strikes at the heart of the American culture of this like American individualism. We're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we're going to have the white picket fence and our wealth is going to be in our, in our land and our holdings. And like, if we're creating this wealth generating vehicle, Yet all of a sudden, it feels like this is a, a missing leg from that stool. But how do you see that? And the, I'm not weighing in saying any one side. I don't have a dog in the race, I guess. But I'm curious of what you say whenever you are confronted with um, that critique of this model. Mm-hmm. I, I, first, I want to say that that critique from this model doesn't come from the people who are interested in buying our homes or who can't afford market rate housing, right? Which is an ironic thing from my perspective. So the folks who buy our homes are locked out of that opportunity that you just described. They don't have access to market rate housing in any way, shape or form. And so so that American dream is really not available to them. And so this is an opportunity to really participate in that in in a slightly different way. So our homeowners still get equity through their monthly paydowns. They still see some appreciation. They still walk away far better off than when they started. And if you can compare it to renting, not only are they having this equity opportunity, but the savings in terms of not seeing monthly increases in rent or annual increases in rent. I just did the math on one homeowner who bought in our original neighborhood, 1994, And if I took what she was paying in rent originally and inflate it by 3% a year, and then I compare that, or actually I didn't do 3% a year, I did market rate rents, the changes in market rate rents from that time to this time. She saved $91,000 from not paying annual rent increases. And her monthly payment today is about $475 a month for her home. So, you know, that's financial empowerment, right? People have the stability to then invest their money in different ways to make decisions for their families that that would be radically different than if they were looking at annual rent increases and were paying $1,800 a month in rent today, something like that. And I know you work across the country. What do you typically see the demographic that's getting served? Like, I know the the terminology that gets used is the area median income. What percentage of that? And maybe so, we can introduce that concept as well as just talk about who who really are the homeowners and the renters within these community land trusts. Mm-hmm, that's a great question. So, so generally speaking, when public funds are used to create affordable housing, there's strings attached, right? Well, not generally speaking, always when public funds are used, there's strings attached. And those strings tend to be tied to a percentage of area median income. And historically, that's been 80% of area median income. So if you use public funding, your homes have to be sold to people at or below 80% of median. Now in high cost areas, that goes up. And then sometimes when there's state resources or local resources, instead of federal, that might be 115% of median, for example, or 120 in some cases. But 80% is really in large part what our restrictions are related to. 
but but what that means for us, you know, if you earn 81% a median, you still can't afford anything on Orcas Island. And if you earn 100% a median, you still can't afford anything on Orcas Island. So when our homes are publicly funded, they might have those kinds of restrictions. But we also do private fundraising to make sure we have some homes available to people who are at 81% or at 100% or at 110%. So practically speaking, we can serve home buyers because folks can access USDA financing in our market, which is a, a kind of interest rate subsidy product by the Department of Agriculture. We can serve homeowners, home buyers earning as little as $25,000 or $27,000 a year. So, you know, $2,200 to $2,500 a month of gross income, all the way up into the, you know, $100,000 a year, something of that nature. Wow, that's incredible to be able to serve that population. Julie, what do you think you've seen the the implications of, I mean, you have, I think, 200 homes that's under management. Have you seen a direct impact within the community and or have other people that are not involved with Opal? What what would you say that they would really say has been the effect that Opal has had within Orcas? I think it's a pretty profound effect. And I think you'd hear a lot of people sort of echo that same thing, because when we see people leave the island, it's often because of housing. And so, you know, a lot of talent, a lot of the workforce, kids, you know, end up leaving Orcas Island because of a transition in housing that they can't survive. And so, you know, we know that there's at least 200 families that are here that can stay here because of Opal. And I just was reading an article in the newspaper last week that highlighted an Opal family who purchased a home in one of our larger neighborhoods. And in the article referenced, I want to say 10% of the school-age kids live in Opal homes. So that's a significant portion of kids. Um, And, you know, in a community of just 5,000 people, 200 households is a lot of people. And so it's, you know, everybody knows someone who lives in an Opal home. Wow. What... Whenever you talk about community land trust, I know that also extends towards the governance structure. How does the community incorporate it into that? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's there's a big difference between just doing a resale restricted housing program, which that's what I've been referencing, those resale restrictions in our lease, and being a community land trust. So you might see a Habitat for Humanity, for example, that has a resale restricted housing program. And those are great, and they have the same restrictions. But, but the community land trust is a little bit different because we really sort of emphasize and focus on this idea that it's con- community controlled. And, and when I think about a place like Orcas Island, where you know, we own the land under two hundred homes. That's a lot of real estate. It's a lot of expensive real estate in Orcas Island. So I could imagine if we didn't have sort of some checks and balances in place and this community control aspect, that could be that could be at risk in the future. So community land trusts are designed to have balance in their board governance, which means a third of our board of directors is made up of our homeowners. So they have direct influence over how our programs evolve in the future, for example. Um, and then also we are a membership organization. So our board of directors is not self-perpetuating. It's not just a group of people who all are picking the next group of people, but it goes out to a vote of our membership. And we've got several hundred members on Orcas Island and, you know, people come out and actually vote for our new leadership. So that means a lot to us. And, and for community land trust in our bylaws, one other component is if we ever want to sell land, it actually has to go to a vote of the membership, not just a vote of the board of directors. So we take our land ownership and, and stewardship seriously, and we want to make sure that the, we're stewarding our assets appropriately, and we've got some checks and balances in place to ensure that happens over time. Yeah, and that's such a critical piece to be by the members and for the members and for the community. I've heard you talk about 
not asking people for money because I know that there is a significant amount of public funds that need to come with this with philanthropy or limited investment opportunities for someone that wants to give money. But you really talk about investing into the community, that this is an investment for a resilient community, for a thriving community. I'd love for you to just touch on that. For anybody that that like sees the effects of, of not having adequate housing stock for a community, it shows up in a lot of different ways. And I know that people are often just left wondering, how on earth do we get involved? How do we do this? And what you've said around participation, it just really strikes that it pulls on my heartstrings, certainly. So we had one of our board members who used to talk about his enlightened self-interest a lot. (laughs) And he was like, we need to tap into this community's enlightened self-interest. All the people who live on Orcas Island want to be able to go to the grocery store here and they don't want to have to do that shopping over on the mainland. So it's in all of our self-interest to have a resource that so that people can live here and stay here. So I, I think you're right. We do a lot of fundraising at Opal. We have to do a lot of fundraising, not just for our sort of operations, but for our capital investments into land and homes. And it is an investment by the community that, that, you know, Orcas has decided it doesn't want to be a place where the workers are flown in on the weekends to serve the people who, who don't work and who live here. Um, but rather it wants to be a community with people of all incomes. And so our community has invested accordingly and supports the, the creation of these homes, um, which really means a lot. And, and the other thing that, that we talk about, and we really do a lot of, we, I lot of spend a lot of my work day on this idea of stewardship. And that requires some investment as well. So, you know, we have these financial investments to create that affordability, but that's not self-perpetuating. We have to actually manage those resales. We have to make sure that our homes are maintained over time. And when they sell, they're in good shape. We have to be there for our home buyers if they get in trouble. And, you know, when things like the pandemic hit, I had a hundred homeowners who I knew were suddenly out of work, right? All in that minute. And so we needed to be, you know, on top of outreach and support for the folks who have invested their, you know, who live in our homes and who are our partners in these investments. Wow. So the community members that aren't living there, but let's say people have extra money or they have land or a house is, is it purely philanthropic or are you taking in existing housing or are you just acquiring raw land so that you can develop? What does that look like for Opal? Yeah. So, I mean, at any moment in in time and wherever we are in the real estate roller coaster, that answer will change, right? So we're opportunistic, I guess. We like to call ourselves nimble, but I think that really means opportunistic. So what we do is, you know, if we can buy houses cheap enough to bring in subsidy for less than what we can build them for, then we'll buy them. And then when that becomes no longer viable, then we start building. And then maybe somebody comes to us with a below market sale of a piece of property or a home because they believe in what we do. And they might, we might partner with them through a below market sale. Somebody might leave us a piece of land or we had one, one person, this was one of my favorite stories where we were building up our largest subdivision at the time. It was a 32 unit subdivision right across the street from the local clinic and right across the street from the performing arts center on Orcas. And this gentleman walked his dog past our site daily. We never met him. He didn't know us. He didn't know Opal homeowners. He just walked past this construction site and saw the sign. And one day he came into Lisa Byers, my Opal's director, came into her office and said, I'm going to make your day. And she was like, okay. (laughs) He said, I'm about to move to this whatever assisted living place in Port Townsend. I've got enough money for my life there. I don't need this house. So I want you guys to have it. 
So he donated his home and the land under it to Opal for another opportunity for somebody to have a home on Orcas. And, you know, we didn't even solicit that. That just was somebody's kind nature and some good observations on his part. So so we never know who's going to come knocking and we we try to be a yes organization. We had another person who had a rental unit that she relied on the rental income for her retirement income. So she had a lot of wealth in property, but she was not a wealthy person. You know, she didn't have a lot of income. And But she was tired of being a landlord. So she came to Opal and she was like, how about we figure something out so that you guys still give me my $2,000 a month for the next 20 years or whatever it was. And I give you this house and property and we figure it out together. And so we did. We She donated the house and land to us. We sold the home at an affordable price to somebody. We took the income from the sale of the home and invested it. And the money that that threw off is what pays that woman her monthly income that she relies on for her retirement. So, you know, we got a home out of it without any additional investment. She got her retirement and and another Opal resident got a lovely home on the east side. And this is exactly why I say it's just like it's blending these models and taking the best of public and private. And that's a pretty sophisticated move right there in order to put that together. One thing that comes up for us on Whidbey Island is that People, the city, other organizations, they're saying, we need rentals. We, If you're going to do a community land trust, like make sure to provide rentals. And I've seen your spreadsheets and it looks like rentals are pose a bigger hurdle than if you're going to deliver homeownership opportunities. Why is that? Can you speak into that? Yeah, that's a, it's really frustrating being in a rural community is particularly in Washington state. I mean, we're fortunate. We have the housing trust fund. We have some resources that other states don't have, and they invest heavily in both community land trusts and rental housing, but sort of the world of rental housing development and affordable rental housing development in this country has all revolved around tax, federal tax credits. And in Washington, if you're going to you have to, it's a competitive process to get these tax credits as it should be. And they prioritize things like homelessness and veterans housing. And, you know, our little island of 5,000 people doesn't need a homeless shelter. What it needs is rental housing. So people aren't homeless. And it does not to say we don't have people who are homeless, but, you know, it's a, it's a different problem on a different scale in a rural community than it is in an urban setting. So I understand their motivation behind those priorities. But what it means is the tax credit projects don't get funded in rural areas, which means that affordable rental housing doesn't get developed in rural areas. And we, Opal, had decided that we were going to go down that path and try to figure out how to deliver some rental housing. We, we just finished. Um, it took us about five years to get all the money. We were on... Um, like plan Z in terms of our spreadsheet tabs on how to finance this rental housing project. But it costs much more to subsidize a unit of rental housing than it does to subsidize a unit of owner-occupied housing because our homeowner partners can go out and get a mortgage at a really low interest rate, for example. And well, it used to be true, not true. Well, actually it's still true because they can get USDA financing in large part. Um, and our renters can't afford to pay very much in rental. And some of that has to go to the oversight and management of that rental property. So the income that you get from an affordable rental unit that can be used to service debt is very small. And that debt is going to be at a higher interest rate than what your homeowners can get, can access. So the net effect is you need far more public subsidy dollars to create one unit of rental housing than to create a unit of owner-occupied housing. So it's just much harder to do. It's much more expensive to do. There's also all kinds of different, you know, 
like you're talking about sprinkler systems, like, you know, the physical space of the housing often triggers additional costs as well. But even if you're talking about exactly the same physical unit, it's more expensive from the housing provider's side to deliver a unit of rental housing at an affordable rent than it is a unit of owner-occupied housing at an affordable monthly payment. And in our community and in yours too, because you have access to USDA financing, our home buyers can still get three and a half percent mortgages right now. And then their monthly payments can be based on as low as a 1% interest rate. So that really expands their buying power dramatically. Wow. Well, Julie, let me switch into what you see on a national perspective do you see this proliferating with more and more community land trusts coming out? And, and really, what do you think is the scale? Does this make sense if somebody wants to you know, have a fourplex and create a community land trust out of that? Um, or does it really beg that it needs a larger scale in order to really make it work? That's a great question, Neil. I, I get invited into a lot of communities to talk about their 10-unit community land trust project. And if 10 units is what you need, then, you know, a community land trust is not a great solution because you need somebody to manage and oversee that in perpetuity. And there's not the sort of scale that requires to do that well. So when it's a small community like that, I'm usually looking around for like, who are the partners? Is there any community land trust in a neighboring county who might be able to manage units if we could come up with the subsidy sources? And, you know, what's a solution that might work in these in, in a smaller place that's never going to need more housing than those 10 units or never can imagine needing more housing than those 10 units? So there is a scale component from my perspective associated with this. We don't want to have each little tiny community have its own community land trust because it's just too expensive on the administration and oversight side. Hmm. That's interesting. So for the people that are interested in creating a community land trust, what do you think some of those initial steps are to take in order to make progress on this? Or, or what are some of those skill sets that you really see being valuable towards creating one? Um, I mean, passion, right? That's probably the biggest thing, right? Having a group of people who are passionate about trying to solve a problem and address a need in their community and sort of a commitment to the long-term vision, because it's not easy to start any organization, but it's particularly not easy to start a nonprofit housing organization and particularly not easy to start a community land trust. It's not a leisure activity, right? It takes a lot of hard work. And, And then the other thing that I usually tell groups when they're starting up these days is Opal started slow and over a lot of years and you know, it was kind of a little bit of a hippie era and and we don't have the luxury of that anymore. You have to be able to get up and running and, and get to some scale fairly quickly or you fizzle out along the way. So having, you know, some forethought to plan out that sort of three to five year horizon to really get some units under your belt so that you're in a viable position moving forward is, is I think, important. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, the interest in community land trust always peaks when the market peaks, right? But we've been really effective in both up markets and down markets. So when the foreclosure crisis happened, community land trust foreclosure rates were a fraction of the market rate foreclosure rates, literally a fraction. So when they were, you know, 4% nationwide, they were four tenths of a percent in community land trust buyer, which is really a dramatic um, shift. So that was the first time that I think we really took a 
took the victory lap on our upfront stewardship, right? We prepare people for their home ownership opportunities so that they will be successful in that opportunity. Um, we make sure that the housing is a truly affordable and not just not just variable rate affordable, right? Not just affordable today, but it's going to be affordable tomorrow as well. Um, so, so, you know, the hot markets is when people are most interested in it, but that doesn't need to be when they happen, you know, take advantage of those down market moments to secure some land or some housing or whatever, because the market's going to go back up again down the road. And my husband's a big tree planting guy. The best time to plant a tree is a hundred years ago. The next best time is today. Right. And I think the same is true for, um, for acquiring land and homes for long-term permanent affordability through community land trusts. Well, I know having having access to your expertise has been really invaluable for the organization that we're starting here on Woodby Island called Home on Woodby. And it seems like there is public money that is coming at the state level. So this is where if anybody isn't interested, I'm going to say like, go find experts like Julie that you can rope in as a consultant, because it, it just really helps to expedite that time to get up and running. And Julie, is there, I know you had said you have no website, but if somebody is interested in in either forming a community land trust or really taking theirs to the next level, if they're just kind of getting started, is there a way that that they can reach out to you? Yeah. So there's also some other resources that I want to recommend. So there's a national organization called the Grounded Solutions Network. And I do a lot of work for Grounded Solutions. And that's sort of the National Trade Association for Community Land Trusts and groups that do permanent affordability. We I teach a lot of classes through them. So that's kind of a good way to plug in initially is through some of their trainings. And they do virtual trainings as well as in-person trainings at their conferences. And then they have like a help desk and a TA line so that you can call as a new community member and get some of your questions answered. So in the absence of my website, I would recommend reaching out to Grounded Solutions and, and, and tap into theirs. They'll send you to me eventually if that seems like a good fit. I didn't realize that there's a help desk. We'd be on that there on is. the calls. <laughs> well, Julie, thank you for the time. This is really enlightening. This is a great overview. And it's just, it's nice to know that there's people out there that have really just been jamming on this for a long time and really serving their communities. And I can unequivocally say that Orcas Island is just really lucky to have you and, and Opal. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. And I look forward to having another Island Community Land Trust to, um, you know, share ideas with them with you. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you want to follow our work at Latitude, you can follow us on Instagram at latitude.regenerative.re and mine is at I am Neil Collins. We inherently believe in the potential that comes from connecting value-aligned and purpose-driven people together in community. That's why I encourage you to join our mighty network and introduce yourself to the other people working across the globe to advance a more regenerative, resilient, and beautiful world. Here, we want to know what you're working on and what inspires you. Through this platform, you can attend live events, take courses provided by our podcast guests, 
and create connection with other people and businesses that share your same passion. To join, find the link in our show notes or visit our website at chooselatitude.com. If you'd like to support the show, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow us on your podcast app so that you always have the latest episode downloaded. Another way to support our regenerative field building is to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Positive ratings help attract amazing guests, and they can be the deciding factor for someone else to tune in and listen. And who knows? Maybe this is the kind of motivation that it takes for them to finally decide to align their profession with their sustainable and regenerative values and become a positive force for good within their own community. This show was produced by myself and edited by Anthony Wallace and offered as a part of our work with Latitude Regenerative Real Estate.